Hi everyone, I'm Michelle Danilock. I'm a professor of food microbiology at the University of Florida, and I'm here today with... Uh, Chris Gunter, I'm a vegetable pr uh, production specialist and professor at North Carolina State University. And Chris and I would like to welcome you all to a short series of podcasts we've put together with the fantastic help and support uh, of our colleagues at AFDO and NASDA to cover some of the educational content we'd planned on sharing at the NASDA Produce Safety Educator Consortium pre-workshop meeting earlier this year. Uh, so instead of putting together a webinar or some sort of other online show to try to recreate the experience we had planned for you, we've decided on this short series of podcasts instead to have organic discussions with all of our presenters for them to really share some of the insights and the science behind some of our favorite topics uh, in produce safety and related to the produce safety rule. Our guest for this, this episode is Miss Diane Walker. She's a research engineer at the Center for Biofilms Engineering at Montana State University. And Diane, did I miss anything? No, that's right. Okay, and Diane, uh, we're happy to have you here today to tell us a little bit about uh, the Center for Biofilm Engineering and what you do there. Yeah, great. Um, thanks again for the opportunity to talk with you today. This is, um, I'm sorry that things have worked out the way they have for us to have to cancel your meeting in Denver, but uh, this is a, another good opportunity here. Um, for those who don't know, um, the Center for Biofilm Engineering, or CBE, was founded back in 1990 when Montana State was awarded a National Science Foundation Engineering Research Grant. Um, this was the largest single grant in MSU's history at the time, and the grant was a graduated one, meaning over the course of the 11-year life of the grant, funding would decrease each year with the idea that the research center would become self-sufficient by the end. And that self-sufficiency would come about through an industry membership program. Um, today, uh, we have about 30 industrial members that support the center and it's a pretty diversified, including specialty chemicals, consumer products, healthcare and food safety. Um, I particularly work in one of seven focus areas uh, at the CBE. And my lab specifically is the Standardized Biofilm Methods Lab. And we have two main missions. And the first is to develop biofilm methods that we then take through the standardization um, process. Uh, there are currently five biofilm growth and treatment methods that have been standardized through the consensus setting organization, ASTM International. And our second mission is to conduct testing projects for industry using those standard methods or other specialized um, uh, experiments um, that we can design specifically to fit the needs of companies. So Diane, can you tell us a little bit about why having those standardized methods are so important? Because to me, it feels like that's a really important step is having a standardized method for developing biofilms. It really does. Um, so. There's, there's typically about four things that we talk about when we talk about the importance of standardization. One, it um, allows for, uh, to have a teaching tool so people can easily learn by following a recipe. So a standard method is essentially a recipe that people, anybody can follow. Um, it also provides a common language so that uh, everybody understands what is being referred to later on in the 
the talk, I'll probably use the terminology coupon when I'm describing a surface that um, biofilm is grown on. And it's just a, a term like a disc or a carrier or a slide. It's just a surface of known area that you grow the biofilm on so that you're able to remove biofilm from there and get some cell counts. So you know what you, you can do some calculations. Um, standardization also helps with the regulatory agencies. For example, uh, we've been under contract with the EPA for a number of years now. And through the standardization process, we have worked with them to help them develop uh, methods that companies can now use to submit for registering their products um, to make biofilm claims. So that's pretty huge. Yeah, sounds like it. For sure. So you keep talking about biofilms, but maybe I just realized now not everyone who's listening might have not have a really great understanding of what biofilms are. So can you tell us a little bit about what a biofilm is and why we're interested in it uh, in respect to produce safety and the produce safety rule? Yeah, sure. So um, biofilms are communities of microorganisms and they're going to be attached to the surface. So every morning we brush our teeth and we are brushing off a biofilm that is formed overnight. Um, once they attach to something, um, they produce this slime, once they're bacteria and viruses or protozoan, it can be made up of, of a bunch of different microorganisms. And once they attach to a surface, they produce this slimy layer of extracellular polymeric substances. And that can form a protective barrier that can prevent penetration of sanitizers or disinfectants. Um, it pr really protects the microorganisms that are within the biofilm. Um, yeah, so with respect to the produce safety rule. Well, let's hang on. I want to ask you a question because you said something really interesting there that I've been, I've been curious about for a while and I don't know the answer to uh, around protozoa and viruses. So do, can protozoa and viruses form their own biofilms or do they just sort of integrate into the bacterial structure? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we know that bacteria produce this EPS, this extra polymeric substance, and they produce the slime. Not all of them do that. Like for example, E. coli 015747, um, isn't the greatest biofilm producer. Some species of listeria aren't the best, or strains aren't the best biofilm formers. However, they can certainly be within a biofilm that is formed by other better biofilm producers. For example, uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa typically is a really good biofilm formers. Um, so the other microorganisms can just be a part of the biofilm without being the biofilm formers themselves. So that's really, really fascinating. I know that's had been a question I've, I've actually asked some of my colleagues before and none of us were pretty sure. So thank you for so much for following up on that. So let's, let's, you, the second half of that first question I asked was about why are biofilms important for produce safety? And so I'll do you, let you answer that one next. Oh, sure. So I know that the produce safety rule and the preventive controls um, aspect are slightly slightly different with the produce safety rules being more specific to uh, farms and the preventive controls uh, aspect being more towards the production facilities or processing facilities. But 
regardless, um, microbes are found in, in soils and surface water and manure, and they can come from handling sources like washing and packing, and they're readily transferred from one surface to another. If conditions are right, uh, they will, they can form biofilms, or if there's an existing biofilm like we mentioned just earlier, um, other microorganisms will take advantage of that and can become part of an existing biofilm. Um, any nooks and crannies like those found on uh, like the rough surface of a cantaloupe or an avocado, when we're talking about produce itself, uh, like the calyx and stem portions on an apple, stomata and leafy greens, or even like cracks and crevices in a wood table or crate are all areas where there are opportunities for microbes to get into and eventually form biofilms potentially. Well, now you're talking about an area close to my heart, you know, with, the, with produce specifically. So can you talk a little bit about how biofilms are being looked at uh, from a research standpoint in the produce? Yeah, sure. Um, for studies that represent like processing facilities, there are countless studies that look at the assortment of materials that are used in the facilities, like stainless steels, rubbers, plastics. Uh, different microbes are grown like uh, Listeria, Salmonella, E. coli, just to name a few. And a whole variety of conditions are investigated, uh, different temperatures, different nutrients, different pH. But specifically for fruits and vegetables, I have three examples from the literature that highlight the progression of biofilm studies. So just to give you a little tiny uh, hint of history. So in 1997, a visiting researcher at the CBE published a paper in the journal Applied and Environmental Microbiology, where they used a scanning electron microscope, or SEM, to identify that uh, biofilm were indeed present in a variety of leafy greens. Then uh, outbreaks from foodborne illnesses in, in cantaloupe, from cantaloupe, um, in 2005, researchers from the USDA described their findings in a paper in the Journal of Food Safety, where they also used SEM. But in this case, they were looking for biofilm formation on cantaloupes after the rinds were spot inoculated with salmonella. And they visibly saw evidence of biofilms establishing after just two hours at 20 degrees C, and then fully developed biofilms were found after 24 hours at both 20 degrees C and 10 degrees C. Um, even more recently, in 2016, a group from CIFSAN put out a paper in the Journal of Food Protection reporting on the internalization of Listeria monocytogenes in avocados, um, again by spot inoculation. But in this instance, they determined the number of, of bacteria that were also present um, after a 15-day um, inoculation at four degrees C they found that there were about six to seven logs of, of cells, CFU per gram, in the edible portion near the stem scar um, after that length of time. Um, so studies show that biofilms can and do establish in fruits and vegetables and can do so in fairly high numbers. So you, you, could, you said a couple of terms there. Uh, you talked about, you know, being able to visualize these things by, by SEM. So that's scanning electron microscope. Is that a tool you guys use in your center at all? We sure do. Yeah, that's one of them. The 
Um, there are other ways that we would, would also use microscopy to visualize bacteria, because you know, bacteria are so tiny you can't see them. And, and if you can see them, they're usually gonna be in a biofilm and then that's not a good thing if you ever see bacteria. Right. <laughs> so scanning electron microscopy is certainly used. The disadvantage of that is that it will destruct a, the, the process of preparing the sample for looking at it under the microscope often dries it out and destroys the, the whole um, EPS or the slime structure that's holding the bacteria together. So you'll see the bacteria, but you can't see, uh, you can see remnants of slime structure, but it's not as good as, for example, a confocal scanning laser microscope that doesn't destroy the sample. So can I, I'm going to ask more questions about this, and I, I love that you get to say words like slime structure in, uh, in, in your job. That would be something I'm, I don't get to say in mine very often. But so if you look at a confocal picture, you talked about how you could see a biofilm, uh, you know, sort of setting up, and then you could see an established biofilm. What sort of things would you be looking at or would you need to see to sort of see that? What, what sort of things would you need to see to either show a biofilm was first starting and then to what would what would define a sort of a fully established biofilm on either a fruit surface or a or a food contact surface? Well, um, Pseudomonas, for example, just taking that as an example, has a flagella. So when you look at that under the microscope, if it's just floating around, it's free floating by itself, it's going to have that flagella. It looks like a tail sticking off of it. When a pseudomonas attaches to a surface in the uh, first step of it towards um, excreting any polymeric substances, it will lose that flagella. So that's an indication right there that some gene has been turned off. Um, then you could start seeing some slime being produced. You usually see some fimbrolae, some, some um, fibers, that are coming off of the bacteria, and you can literally see them attaching to a surface there. And then as it's developed and growing, you're gonna get to see more, um, more of that. Um, it's gonna fill in. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. And so conf is confocal as destructive as SEM uh, when you're looking at it? Could you, could you sort of time-lapse watch something like that uh, on a confocal microscope? Yeah, actually, in, um, let's see, 2009, there's a paper out by, his name is Ben Clayman, he was a student of ours, who actually um, ran both Pseudomonas originosa and E. coli 0157 through a capillary tube, which is just this see-through tube that he put underneath the confocal. And both of those bugs, both of those bacteria were stained with different colors so that you can see how they fluoresce under the scope. And what he saw was uh, Pseudomonas, even though these were both being added at the same time, Pseudomonas and E. coli, Pseudomonas had to develop the biofilm first. And that, once that was developed, then the E. coli started growing underneath the Pseudomonas. And yeah, that was over a 72 hour period. Gosh, that's fascinating. Um, so the, the E. coli was taking advantage of another bacteria's ability to form the biofilm? Exactly, exactly. 
So can I ask now a question about what, what sort of makes um, a surface more preferable for somebody to form for, for like something like pseudomonad or a really good biofilm former to form a biofilm on it. Um, you talked about stainless steel and plastic, you know, and some of the packing houses we've got, we've got more, we've got, we've got different types of equipment, um, you know, some, some unsmooth steel, but we've also got some really porous equipment, something like pool noodles um, and, uh, and carpet. And I kid you not, these are things that we, we see as food contact surfaces. So what, what I guess, would those things do you think be something that would be great, a good thing for a biofilm to form on? Or uh, what, what would make a surface good for, for biofilm formation on it? Yeah, I'd say that from the studies that we've done, um, surfaces that are extremely smooth have the best chance of warding off uh, biofilm formation initially. Um, anything, any kind of rough surface. Um, I've seen what I've seen in dairy processing plants have some um, ceramic tiles or with grout or some cement bricks, um, very porous materials, wood. It, they are just great attractants for uh, bacteria. Bacteria, mind you, can be like two microns thick, which is not visible. Um, so any nook and cranny, they, they're going to take advantage of that. They can make their way into that. Yeah, so you know, a lot of us have plastic surfaces in in our packing environments. You know, plastic crates that have been used a few times. Um, to us, they might look smooth, but what about to these bacteria? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they might look smooth to us, but um, if there's a scratch, you're probably going to find some bacteria in there. And do you think that? Do you think that would automatically lead to biofilm formation or, or what would be the process then? Oh, sure. So over time, if you have a scratch that disinfectants can't access um, or your mechanical scrubbing misses, then the, and it keeps getting replenished with nutrients, if it keeps getting uh, the food in contact with that surface and it doesn't get washed down, it's gonna be just a great place for them to stick around. So if you have recurring um, uh, adulteration within the a plant, uh, those are the kinds of places to look at to see if there's any um, nooks and crannies that are holding onto some biofilms that are harboring all these uh, potential pathogens. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really um, interesting topic, especially in these farms that are starting to reevaluate the ability to to clean equipment and clean um, packing tools and things like that for for hygienic quality um, rather than just their functional quality. Sure. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about uh, the research that that you're doing and approaches to to control these biofilms and get rid of these biofilms? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I just want to point out that, um, like, as I said earlier, we all brush our teeth to remove the biofilm that grows overnight. Um, that's, that's really always going to be 
if possible, the best approach in biofilm removal is, and just like cleaning and sanitization, you got to clean off a surface before you apply a sanitizer. So any mechanical um, removal that you can do is is going to be the the best first approach that any that you can ever take. We're just looking for for you know the types of research studies that are being conducted um, to test ways to control these. Like how are they doing that in the lab? What what kind of tests would you do to to talk about that? Yeah, so with respect to fresh produce, there's a paper that I definitely recommend folks to look at. It has a lot of associated references with it. Um, it came out in 2019. It's a review article uh, from Comprehensive Reviews in Food Science and Food Safety. Uh, the title of it is, is Food Safety Interventions to Control Listeria Monocytogenes in the Fresh Apple Packing Industry. And I think it's a really good um, example of, of um, it provides a lot of uh, good references of researchers who've used chemical treatments, which are traditional disinfectants, um, but also natural chemicals like essential oils. They reference physical methods for control like radiation, ultrasound, and cold plasma, and then also biological controls like probiotics or bacteriophage. And those um, are, I think that's a good place for people to start for references with respect to fresh produce. Um, on the other hand, with respect to the uh, processing plants, there are as I mentioned earlier, there are just tons of, of references out there. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little, Diane, about what you guys are doing at the center? Oh, sure. So uh, I work in the, as I mentioned, the standardized biofilm methods lab. And in particular, our lab um, conducts efficacy testing for companies that have products um, that they want to test against biofilms. And so um, we look at all different types of surface materials um, and we do them in a variety of different approaches. Um, there's all different kinds of reactor systems that laboratory scientists use to grow biofilms. Um, we can do these custom build ones and test products against that or test people's biofilm sensors against. We could also um, use the standardized methods and modify them. All the standard methods are were developed using Pseudomonas aeruginosa because it's such a really great biofilm former and it was it's ubiquitous. It's found everywhere. Um, but you could take those standard methods and modify them for nutrients or temperature um, to grow different bacteria in. The differences between the reactor systems, since we're the Center for Biofilm Engineering, we use engineering concepts to design these reactor systems that grow different biofilms. So a drip flow reactor, for example, would be a reactor you would want to choose if you were going to study a biofilm that was grown on, that was growing on produce found in like the veggie aisle in the grocery store because the mister comes down and sprays the, the water over the um, vegetable, the tomato or whatever. 
with really low shear. It's just a very gentle, soft shear, uh, which is an engineering term for the how much abrasion um, a surface is going to see, versus the flow that would be found in an orange juice distribution line, right? That would be uh, pumping a much higher volume of liquid. And so the shear forces would be so much greater than that little mist would apply. And so we know that when you grow biofilm under different conditions, you they end up being more or less susceptible to disinfectant treatment. So the one with the low shear is going to be more susceptible than the one that was grown under high shear. So those are some of the things we look at. Yeah, that's super interesting. Different environments favor different types of biofilm formers and how that impacts the formation of the film. Absolutely. And the the shear, the one with the low shear isn't going to be as strongly adhered to a surface as the one that was grown under high shear, right? Because it, it wouldn't need to be as strongly as attached because it's not dealing with such um, forces. So, so I just, I, yeah, oh, go, sorry, go on. No, you're good. Um, so that's, that, I, I agree with Chris, that's really something I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about is about shear forces. So when you, when you're looking at then, or when somebody's looking at studying different chemicals, does shear force or the way those chemicals or mitigation strategies are applied make a difference on how effective they are? It can. So, um, there's a couple of different ways that you can apply. You can grow up the bacteria in one of these reactor systems and apply the treatment directly in place, or you can remove that from the system. You can remove the biofilm from that system and apply it in a stationary uh, type of application. And when it's in place, if it's like chlorine, for example, and I think you'll all be able to relate to this, um, like in a dump wash, for example, um, if you just have a single tank for a dump wash, you get all this, the dirt and debris and the um, organic matter that's in there. And if you were to apply like a chlorine treatment, a lot of that organic material is just gonna absorb, it's going to be deactivated by that organic material, leaving you with less product to attack the bacteria with. So if you were to apply a treatment in situ, is what they call it, um, in place in the reactor system, you're gonna have a lot of extra material that the compound, the disinfectant has to deal to, that deal with before it can even get to uh, your bacteria. Unlike where if you would remove your um, biofilm from that system and put it into the uh, treatment itself, you'd get different results because you wouldn't have to worry about all of that um, extra organic matter. It's really, really fascinating. So as you've been looking through the literature uh, and, and knowing what you know about biofilms and, and, and the work that you're currently doing, what would you say the, the gaps are in terms of what we know about biofilm uh, research, especially for the, the agricultural community and, and fresh produce in general? Yeah, that the paper that I mentioned earlier, the review article in the Comprehensive Reviews of 
on food science and food safety, they do a really nice job of pointing out some of the gaps, like the need for um, more studies on the internalization of pathogens that are tested. Um, it's only been done on a limited number of, of fruits and vegetables, and it could be useful on other types. Um, in addition, let's see, like at, this, at the CBE, we think a lot about how biofilms on surfaces can contribute to higher transfer rates. And so we think it's important to test um, the efficacy of surface disinfectants against bacteria that are in biofilms, which, which is being done. So some examples of that, um, a 2019 Frontiers in Microbiology Journal article uh, compares different sanitizers against Listeria monocytogenes biofilms that are grown on materials typically used as food contact surfaces. And several strains of Listeria uh, were mixed together and grown on stainless steel and a variety of different plastics by submerging the surfaces in two mils of the bacteria in a, a MWB media. Um, the biofilms grew on the surfaces uh, without agitation for seven days, and then the biofilm-coated surfaces were then transferred and subjected to treatments of typical um, food products, uh, treatments, parasitic acid, chlorine, uh, quaternary, quaternary ammonium compounds, or quat, um, chlorine dioxide, at various concentrations and either at one minute or five minute contact time. And then another uh, 2019 paper, this is the USDA along with the University of Georgia. Those researchers tested chlorine dioxide, ozonated water, aquat and chlorine against E. coli biofilms grown on materials common to the blueberry packing environment. The contact time for those efficacy tests were, was one minute. Um, when I, and there's, there's tons of others, as I mentioned earlier, um, and they use different microbes, different nutrients to grow the microbes, different temperatures. And these are all done to represent the conditions that microbes can expect to see. But a gap that, that we know, and plenty of others researchers have noted it also, we totally agree with it, is that standardization of some study methods would be highly beneficial. Um, it would allow us to compare the results that are found when growing and testing products for the control of biofilms. And um, we show in a paper that we put out in 2007 in the Journal of um, Microbiological Methods is that the efficacy results are different, just like I was saying earlier, depending on how the biofilm is grown. So standardization of methods not only allows for the comparison of product testing results, but it's helpful, you know, it's going to be helpful for regulatory agencies in decision making and setting performance standards. And in addition, this is, this is something that's really uh, stands out to us. We have a, uh, a biostatistician that we work with um, and he's pointed out that there's statistical journals that really call for, they stress the need for data describing the reproducibility of results, meaning that completely separate labs anywhere can run the same method and get nearly the same results. And that's the best way to have confidence in a product. And there's so little reproducibility um, data out there. So that, that's one thing that standardization can really bring.
Yeah, I, I, I can't agree with that point more. Um, you know, I always look at data and look at methods and, and then, you know, sometimes comparing different data to each other, wonder how much did the method influence the results they're getting. Um, and, and so I think, I think you're spot on with that point. And I think that's, that's why I think one of the reasons Chris and I wanted to bring awareness to what's going on at the Center for Biofilm Engineering at, at Montana State is because of that fantastic work you guys are doing at looking at method standardization. Um, I did have one other question for you and it's following up on a comment that you made uh, a little bit earlier uh, when you were talking about something missing in the literature and it something that I, I guess I hadn't really thought about or or formulated thoughts on until you you mentioned it and it had to do with the influence of of transfer based on biofilm presence and so you know something we talk about all the time in produce safety is, is cross-contamination and so I guess you know, as I've, I've been listening to you talk about different types of biofilms and how they might form differently and behave differently, depending on the conditions they formed in and the organisms that are present. Have you done any work or do you know of any work being done? And I am putting you on the spot now um, of any work being done to look at how easy bacteria transfer off of a biofilm, like in a cross contamination situation with um, with if like a, a piece, an apple rolled across a biofilm, is that, does that transfer depend on what that biofilm formation looks like? Or do you know, has anybody even looked at that aspect of a biofilm before? Yeah, um, what is the year? Um, Adator, A-D-A-T-O-R, that's the name of the uh, lead author. Um, just put on a paper, it's pretty recent. And I came across this because I was looking at dry biofilms. So last year at the International Association for Food Protection, there was a whole session that was done on dry biofilms. And I needed to learn more about that. Um, but one of the speakers there um, was from the um, health um, industries. And they had done some work sampling a whole bunch of different touch surfaces in hospitals where they did swabbing or um, sponges or something to collect samples from dry surfaces. And th initially they didn't get any, they had zero results of contamination. However, when they took those same pieces, like a typewriter keyboard, a, a computer keyboard that at the nurse's station, um, and put that into some nutrients and gave it some time, rehydrated it, they got more than 90% of the sites that they had originally tested were in fact contaminated because there had been biofilms that had dried down on there. So um, that made me look at other, in the food industry, what papers might be out there. And I came across editor's paper where they looked at, and I, I, hope, I hope I'm remembering that the author's right, but they looked at taking a head of lettuce, which has been rinsed and then sat down on a table before it goes into um, the bag for packing, packaging, um, and that if there was a dry biofilm on that surface, which you wouldn't know without testing, um, that 
that it, and this was with the E. coli, that the E. coli um, would show up, it, could, it just needed maybe a three minute contact time or less sitting on the counter before it was bagged for the E. coli to transfer from the, the table surface onto the lettuce. That's, that's fascinating to me. I have not um, heard of that before, uh, about the potential for a biofilm to dry out and then still cause transfer. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I know that's something I'm going to have to look at because that has some pretty big consequences, right? For if, if for somebody in the produce industry, if they think, oh, well, it's fine if there was a biofilm though before, right? I've, I've cleaned the surface and it's dry now, so it, it doesn't matter for transfer anymore. But the potential for, for that dry biofilm to transfer over is really fascinating. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, thanks yeah. for bringing that up. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in dry biofilms for sure. Yeah, in fact, that was, I was going to just ask you about that. What uh, what do you think is the is the area we should be looking at it in the future? Give us something to to take away from here today with with to look for for the future. Well, I think um, any standardization that can happen um, among methods that laboratory researchers can do, and this is this is um, this isn't the type of post, you know, we've, we found something in the plant and now we have to send this to a lab for testing. That's not, that's not the testing that I'm talking about. This is pre, this is what researchers can do to help benefit, um, is to have some standard methods, test the products in what would be called a, like a round robin or a, an interlaboratory study, meaning a bunch of different laboratories run the same method and are getting the same results. We, we need to know that, uh, Reducibil that rep reproducibility standard deviation among labs. That's really important to, to understand. It's gonna be helpful for the regulatory agencies. And so um, continued product testing, I think on surfaces is a huge thing in biofilms. Thank you so much. Very interesting. So I just realized what time it was and that we've taken up our 30 minutes with you already. Um, Chris, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I'd love to know, um, Diane, as you, as you have a parting uh, moment here to talk with our listeners, can you give us any advice um, for the future with regard to biofilms? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, they've been around longer than we have. They've been, <laughs> they, we just have to be tenacious. Um, we have, there isn't much way around um, if you can help, if you can, mechanical scrubbing of any sort is the best first approach, a cleaning approach first, followed by uh, a, some form of treatment. And they can be, uh, we use a lot of chemicals out there, I know, but there's a lot of uh, work that goes into natural products is going to be really beneficial, I think, for the future. Um, education, as long as everyone is trained and has an appreciation, uh, using uh, examples from home, like we found biofilms growing in soap dispensers um, where you would think that you shouldn't have any. Um, it's just a matter of, of 
you, there's no way to not stay on top of it. You have to just keep cleaning and maybe changing things out. You have to look for places uh, where maybe tables are attached to floors that have nuts and bolts. Those could be sources of contamination. You just have to be tenacious. And fortunately, we have great immune systems, but um, with respect to some of the more uh, pathogenic uh, ones that are of health concern, we really just have to... Uh, keep after them. Diane, thank you so much for spending your time with us today and sharing all this fantastic information. Thank I agree. You. I agree. We can't thank you enough. You know, all of our listeners out there, um, as you um, have been listening to Diane talk today, we hope that this has helped you understand some of the science uh, behind and different aspects of the produce safety rule and that you'll find uh, some links shared with us from Diane and the references we've talked about today um, in our notes, our show notes. Um, so if you do have any follow-up questions, please feel free to reach out to me or to Michelle or to Diane directly, if that's okay with her. Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to hear from folks. Because, you know, you're doing the right things. Just got to keep after it. Perfect. Well, so as we mentioned initially, our intent here is to share the content that we developed for the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium's educational or educators pre-meeting workshop. Um, and we can't thank, again, both Diane enough for being here or AFTO and NASDA for the support they provided us to bring this together. Um, and just a note for anybody listening, if you enjoyed the content you heard today and the format of how we put it together, please do let us and, and AFTO and NASDA know. Uh, and if there are other topics you're interested about to hear in the future, either in this medium or at the next NASDA Consortium Educators uh, pre-meeting, or if you'd like to hear more from Diane in the future, uh, also please let us know. Yep. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you next time.